Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Real quick, anyone want to guess what book we're in? Great job, you guys nailed it. Um, uh, last year, for the first time, uh, I went to Germany and we went on a mission trip. Uh, we've now gone twice. It was great. But when we first got there, uh, me and my buddy Chris Lawler, Chris is right down here, uh, got to Germany ahead of everybody. We had an afternoon free, and uh, somebody said, hey, do you guys want to go climb a mountain? I'm going to call it a mountain. You might call it a large hill. I'm going to call it a mountain. And we went rock climbing with a guy named Andre, and we went and thought we were going to have a great time. And we went up there, and they had the ropes and everything, and one of his kids put it on and just took off off the mountain. It was, it was awesome. He was really fast. Uh, and then they were like, who's going to go next? And Chris was like, I got it. And Chris strapped in and he's like a 0.1% body fat and like weighs like a feather. And he just like flew up there, like just carried by the wind. I don't even know if he, he climbed all the way. Um, and uh, then they were like, Jason, you want to go? And I'm like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, feather, rock, these don't go the same way. Um, and uh, so I'm like, no, no, you got to go, you got to go. And the guy on the rope that was doing what's called belaying, he was like, no, no, no. He goes, if you, if you struggle, I'll pull you up. Uh, he's, not, he's not big. He's not big. I'm just saying, I, I don't know if you're aware of what climbing is. It's a war against gravity. And the guy on the other end of the rope didn't weigh near what I do. But I got up there. I was, I was I mean, I, honestly, I was killing it. It was great. I climbed up and I had a moment that probably didn't look like this, but in my mind, it was one of those moments like, like Tom Cruise in like one of the Mission Impossible movies where I was trying to shift my grip from over here to over here. And I kind of, in my mind, I jumped like 12 feet. It was more about an inch and a half. Um, and I got over here and I held on to it. And I don't know if you've reached this point in your life. Have you ever done something where you're like, I exerted three seconds of effort and now I can't breathe? Have you ever had that happen? Like, you, you, when you were young, you had to go for a while and then not breath. I moved a couple of inches, exerted all my effort, and I, they were like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> They're like, are you going to keep going? I'm like, I'm going. Just calm down. <clears throat> and the guy goes, hey, if you need a rest, just lean back and let your body relax. I got you. Okay. So I leaned back and he came up. And so I grabbed the mountain back. And he's like, no, 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 my feet weren't set. I got you now. And I was like, I'm good. I'm good. And he's like, don't you trust me? No, I do not at all. Chris is trying to get cocky. He's like, don't you have faith? I do, sucker, in Jesus, not in this tiny little German guy, okay? I finally made it up. It was record time. <laughs> Slowest climb that's ever been done on that hill. <laughs> Still a record, I'm just saying. But it brings up an interesting conversation, like what, like where's your faith? Like that's the thing that we think about. We're like, don't you have faith in this moment? And faith is a difficult thing um, for us to get our head around sometimes. Faith in reality is not just the, the leaning back and hoping something right will ha that right will happen. Faith is trust. Faith is confidence. It's assurance. It's belief. I want to look at a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 7. We're going to read and talk through this together. Some amazing things are going to be said in this text, and I don't want you to miss any of them. 
Um, I, I'm just going to read this passage and talk. A lot of this isn't really kind of stuff that I've got a bunch of notes for you to fill out or anything like that. To be honest with you, the Holy Spirit's going to kind of guide us this morning, and so we're just going to go on a little bit of a journey together. Uh, if you've been with us through the Luke series, we've spent eight weeks talking through chapters four through seven, and if you wonder why we did those, well, the book of Luke actually is broken up into a couple of different groupings, and this particular set of chapters is all about Jesus teaching us what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's ushering in a new kingdom, and today what he's going to explain to us is that this kingdom is filled with people who have an active faith. So we're going to look at this starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. When he, Jesus, has concluded saying all of, uh, all of this to all the people who are listening to him, he entered Capernaum, a centurion's servant, many translations will say slave, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. So you've got a a centurion, a kind of a a military official, but he has a slave or a servant that is sick and about to die. Now, just to get into one word right here, because it kind of hangs us up a lot of times in our modern context, it's the word slave or servant, because we contextualize that into our modern language. But that is not how it was done in their language. The Hebrew for slave and servant was the same word. Okay, And so they're not talking about slavery the way that we contextualize slavery of people being dehumanized and putting in boats and carrying across into other countries. He's talking essentially about employment. People that you served. Understand that they did not live in a free society. They lived under Roman rule. So the idea of living in a free United States of America was never part of their thought process. Everybody in their culture was subservient to someone else. And the Bible is going to go to great lengths to tell us in the book of Leviticus that if someone is subservient to you, they are being treated as the way we would see an employee, but they treated them better than an employee. They treated them like family. They loved them well. So much so that if you did it right, many people who served under somebody, when it was time for them to retire, wouldn't leave because they were treated so well there. So I say that just to say, when you see the word slave or servant in this context, please don't put it into the context. We tend to want to do that. We want to put our context into it, but that's not what's happening here. You've got a centurion who has a slave or servant that he's treating so well that he's actually really concerned about his well-being. It goes on to say in verse 3, <coughs> when the centurion... Uh, okay. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now, if you followed us along in Luke or read any of the Gospels, how often are the religious leaders uh, on Jesus' side for anything? Never. So why are they now? They're going to approach, and they're going to just look at him as kind of a common guy. They don't approach you with any sort of uh, title or designation of honor or respect, but they're just going to go, hey, you should go and deal with this guy. He believes something about you, and he deserves your attention. Do they say that he deserves the attention because uh, this guy needs healing or the, the, the slave needs healing? Does he say any? No, he deserves it because he built us a synagogue. That's what he says. In other words, follow the money. They're not after Jesus because they have faith in Jesus. They are after Jesus because they want more cash out of this guy. That's their motivation. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus. Even though their motivation is bad, look at what Jesus does. Verse 6. 
and Jesus went with them. Like, that amazes me. That even though they have the wrong motivation, Jesus is like, man, I'm not getting tied up into all this stuff. I'm going to go where the need is. And so he goes to address this. And when he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, and you can already see that he's going to approach Jesus differently than those religious leaders did. They never once used a designation of honor or respect or glorification, but they, he, the moment he sees him, the first word out of his mouth, Lord. And then he says, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not, what? You see the difference? This guy's worthy of. This guy deserves this. This guy approaches and says, I am not worthy to have come for you, to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But then he says this, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so what this guy is demonstrating is, again, this has all happened in the area around Capernaum. It's not real big, a few thousand people at most, and for the last several weeks, Jesus has gone through that area, and they have, they have seen, story has spread, word has spread of this guy named Jesus and what he is doing, and they, they, they've heard stories of him talking to nature, and nature obeys him. He says, stop raining, stop wind blowing, and the wind and waves obey him like it's his child. That he has demonstrated authority over the seen world, but he's also demonstrated authority over the unseen world because he's also cast out demons. He's forgiven sins. He has operated in the spiritual and in the natural. And they said, man, this guy has authority over everything, and it's working. Like, he's actually doing it. And so this guy believes in Jesus completely. And I love what you're seeing here, because the the Jewish leaders had a missing ingredient as they approached Christ. But this guy has it. Here's what it says in verse 9. And Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. Anybody, how many of you would love to have that said about you? Where you're like, um, how does Jesus feel about you? Uh, he was amazed. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Like if somebody's going to be amazed at you, doesn't it matter who it is? Like if I got my buddy Shane here and Shane goes, Jason, I am amazed at what kind of athlete you are. I'd go, oh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks. If Troy Aikman walked in here and said, Jason, you are a heck of an athlete, I'd be like, <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> Troy knows what he's talking about, right? Like, she, who says it makes a big difference. When Jesus is amazed at something in your life, it's pretty amazing. Man, I hope that's my testimony, and I hope it's yours. What's he amazed about? It says Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, Man, imagine, imagine this being the testimony coming out of Jesus' mouth about you. He says, I tell you, I've not so found so great a faith even in Israel. And when those around him had been sent and returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. He needed a miracle. He had faith in Jesus. And it happened. I want us to dive into this missing ingredient a bit, and that's faith. Today we live in a culture that says faith is blind. Like that's what we talk about, blind faith. In other words, the way it's contextualized in our culture today is that you can have faith or you can have reason. You can be logical or you can be faithful. But that is not correct. 
Every single one of us acts on faith every day of our life. And we act on faith in places we shouldn't even place our faith. Every time you go get on 190 and you drive 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, I don't know how you live, 95, whatever it is, <laughs> you are putting an awful lot of faith in the fact that there is literally an invisible line between you and a whole bunch of other people that you're putting your faith in that they're not going to do something stupid. By the way, they are. It's a bad place to place your faith, and yet we do it every day. When you drive over an overpass, you're putting faith that it's not going to collapse. Sit in these chairs today, you're putting faith in the fact that it's going to hold you up. When you go to Whataburger and you order a medium drink and they give you a 72-ounce cup, and they put a lid on that bathtub of a drink, and you dip it towards your faith, you are putting an awful lot of faith in that tiny little plastic lid to not pour everything out on you because it is holding back about eight pounds of liquid. Like, it is a lot of faith. When you are in your car and you crank up your favorite song and you put on your own little concert in your car, you are putting a lot of faith in that the people around you are not going to know you and make fun of you publicly at some point. We exercise faith a lot. We all have it. That's not the question. The question is this, what are we going to place our faith in? That's the question. See, God's not calling us to blind faith. He's calling us to foundational faith. I want you to see this in the book of Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. We're talking about Abraham. We'll get into that in a minute. Not only to the inherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. So Paul is talking about a guy named Abraham here. If you grew up in uh, church, you grew up going to Bible school and uh, BBS and stuff like this, we all had the song we sang. Uh, we'll see how many of you grew up in church like I did. Father Abraham. Yeah, it's like the Christian version of the hokey pokey. That's what it is. You know, right arm, left arm, right foot, turn around, sit. Like, it's all that. That's what it is. And so, and some of you, some of you are like, what song was that? Um, don't worry, we'll have somebody do it in the welcome area later. It'll be great. But we do this song because we're referencing a patriarch of our faith, a guy named Abraham. Now, why is he a patriarch of the faith? Well, he's going to say he's the father of all of us. What does that mean? Well, God comes to Abraham and his wife Sarah um, in their life and says, you're going to be the father of many nations. From you is going to come this lineage of offspring, and eventually from that will come the Messiah. And it's going to be this life-changing, earth-shattering truth. He says in verse 17, for as it is written... I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom we believed. Now, why does Abraham have faith? The Bible will tell us that Abraham had faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. Why does he have faith? Is his faith blind? No. He's going to tell you right here what he, why he has faith. He has faith, it says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. His faith is not blind. His faith is in a God who brings dead things to life and creates something out of something that didn't exist. He creates something out of nothing. Now, what's he specifically talking about? We can contextualize this a lot of ways, but if you read the rest of chapter 4, it's going to tell us very literally what he's talking about. When Abraham and Sarah get pregnant, they are 90 and 100 years old. So Abraham's going, there is something dead in me, biologically, that cannot produce... And the womb of my wife is also dead. 
and we are supposed to be the father of many nations, big problem, we don't have any kids. And this part of our life is dead. And yet at 100 for Abram and 90 for Sarah, she gets pregnant and they give birth to a child named Isaac. And so when he says, what's your faith based on? It's based on a God who brought life into our lives and created something, a child, out of nothing. His faith was a foundational faith, was based on the evidence of things that God had done in their life. He goes on in verse 20. He says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And I love verse 21. These first two words, fully what, church? Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So what is faith? I think a lot of times we use it synonymously with the word believe, and believe is a great word, and we certainly want you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but belief in and of itself is the beginning point, not the finishing point of your faith. See, belief means intellectual agreement. That's all belief means, that I intellectually agree that something is true, but I can intellectually agree with a lot of things that do not transform my life. I can intellectually agree that a salad is better for me than a bacon cheeseburger. I intellectually agree. I functionally eat the cheeseburger. Okay? So I have belief, but it does not play out in action. And that's the difference between simply believing. By the way, believing is good, but like I said, it's the starting place. The Bible will tell us that even the, even the demons believe in God. Even the demons intellectually agree with who God is, but they have not allowed transformation to occur. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of people in the church land, is they believe, but they've not been changed or transformed. Faith is commitment and trust that moves us to action and obedience. Or I'll put it this way, this definition of faith we'll work with today, taking bold and courageous steps into an unknown future based on reliable information. Taking bold and courageous steps into an unknown future based on reliable information. I don't know how many of you guys grew up in the era I did, but how many of you guys were Indiana Jones fans? Okay, Indiana Jones movie, the third movie, The Last Crusade, he goes into a temple and he is told to have an exercise in faith. He walks up to a, a cliff and there is a chasm in front of him. And he is told in the instructions that he is trusting that, he's just, that he, in order for him to move, he just has to take a step. And if he takes a step, something will happen. It looks like what will happen is he'll fall to his death. But he decides to trust in the reliable information. And he sticks out his foot and he steps and he realizes in that moment it's an optical illusion that there actually was a bridge there the entire time. Don't miss this. He had the faith to step first. And then the evidence was revealed. We often want the evidence revealed so that we can take a step of faith. That's not faith. We step and you will find the reliable evidence of God moving in our life. It, it reminds me a lot of marriage. When Crystal and I uh, got married, it was a bold move for her into an unknown future based on, in me, unreliable information. The, I gave her enough faith the day we got married to walk down the aisle. That was about all that she had. 
There was so much in our life that hadn't happened yet. But like many of you, day after day, moment after moment, after babies and bills and teenagers and bigger bills and long nights, stupid fights. Can I get an amen, anybody? Our faith grew as we exercised forgiveness and grace to each other. I mean, honestly, there are times when I want to look at her and go, did I love you 25 years ago when we got married? Because it feels an awful lot different now. And I know that I did love her back then, but our faith has grown together. She put her faith in me, I put my faith in her, and we took steps. And as we stepped out in faith with each other, evidence grew. And the same is true in our relationship with God. We take bold steps into an unknown future, but in the case of God, it is based on reliable information. For many of you, no matter when you came to Christ, you started out, you came to Christ, you're like, I believe, and I love you, Lord. And then 10 years later, you go, I had no idea. I had no idea how big you were. I had no idea how amazing you were. I had no idea how you were going to come through in my life. Oh, my goodness. And just when you think you get your head around how great God is, you die. And then you realize that you had only seen a glimpse. And now you are filled with limitless faith as you stand in his perfect creation. And you are blown away with limitless faith. That's the God we trust in, story after story, generation after generation. We see the evidence of God's faithfulness over and over and over and over and over. It is not blind faith. It is based on reliable information. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't know it, it is called the Hall of Fame of Faith. And it's an amazing chapter. It starts out talking about faith. It says, faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what is not seen. We, again, think about faith today, and we go, I really hope this happens. I hope the Rangers win game three. That's not faith. Faith, it says right here, is based on reality and proof. When we put our faith in God, it is not blind faith. It is based on evidence. Over and over again in the book of Hebrews, you're going to read these words, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It'll say, by faith, these people did things unbelievable. By faith, Abraham and Noah and Enoch and Sarah and Moses and Joshua and Rahab and David and so many more. By faith, they walked over seas on dry land. By faith, they put foreign armies to flight. By faith, they shut the mouths of lions. By faith, they brought the dead back to life. It is amazing story after amazing story after amazing story of people who stepped trusting God, and every time they did, there was incredible evidence of God's faithfulness. Matter of fact, if you want to get fired up, read chapter 11. I dare you. Matter of fact, I double dog dare you. Oh, yeah, it's getting real now, church. Read chapter 11. It will blow your mind. You will see how faithful and how reliable our God has always been. And some of you go, well, Jason, that's not my testimony. I would love if my testimony was victory after victory after victory. But the truth is, I've got struggle after struggle after struggle. And I go, don't worry, you're in Hebrews 11 too. Because here's what else it says. But there were others. And they refused to turn from God to be set free. They chose captivity. 
They chose to honor God. Why? It said they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. They were like, man, whatever you do to me, sucker, this isn't even my home. This is a pit stop. All this is is a rest area on the journey of my eternity. They were jeered and whipped and chained and stoned and sawed in half. They were killed by the sword, destitute, oppressed, and mistreated. And here's the testimony of their lives in Hebrews 11. It says, and the world was not worthy of them. Whew. Anybody ever met anybody like that? That somehow they go through unbelievable difficult situation after unbelievable difficult situation, and yet you see their faith elevate. It's amazing. See, our faith is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's some, not some sort of spin move where we get out of sickness and hardship. As a matter of fact, and don't miss this, church, because a lot of you are going through circumstances right now. Our faith does not give us clarity on every one of our circumstances. Instead, our faith gives us clarity on who God is in the middle of those circumstances. Our faith does not tell us that bad things do not happen to good people. Our faith tells us that the worst thing happened to the best person. His name is Jesus, and he did it for us. That's what our faith tells us. When we get that in our head, when we get that in our heart, it ignites a light and a fire inside of us, and it sends us out to take bold steps into an unknown future based on reliable information, and we do it for his kingdom and for his mission. And by the way, all those things that you read in Hebrews chapter 11, you go, man, those are things that used to happen. I'm going to tell you, at no point in the Bible does it say that those things have stopped. That there are men and women of faith, and there are miracles our God still wants to perform every day, and he is every day. And I will tell you this, and this might be a challenging thing, it is impossible to please God without faith. Some are like, whoa, too far, Jason. Where did you get that? The Bible. Verse 6, Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And what he's talking about there is this kind of faith. He, he's saying that there is a faith that God has put in you. He has built stuff in you. He has put his Holy Spirit in you, and he is calling you to act and when God has put a call on your life to act and to move and to go, and you do not, it is displeasing to our Father. When we do act and go and move, it pleases our Father. So I want to ask you this and some challenging questions as we dive into the message today. Where is your faith in God sending you? The Bible tells us that in the beginning, there was light. And that light was the life of of men. That the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not recognize it. And that light is passed from generation to generation, illuminating the darkness in every corner of the world. It is restoring hope to the hopeless, faith to the faithless, giving a heavenly father to the fatherless. That that light, the chosen vehicle of it in the New Testament, is that it is dispersed through the church, not the building the church, but the people of God called to take the kingdom of God into the dark world around us. And there will always be opposition to the light. We have an enemy that will oppose it. We will sometimes lose focus, and can we be honest? There are many times that as the church, we have simply fallen asleep to the needs of the people who desperately need the light. But the church was designed to give light. 
to revive lives, to create revival in individual lives. And you know what happens when revival comes to individual lives and you see it happen in mass? It's what's called a great awakening or a revival. And my question, like what if question for you to ponder this morning is this, what if revival in our world started in Rowlett, Texas? What if? And you old Jason, it's relit. Yeah, Bethlehem wasn't significant. Most every little town that God uses in the New Testament and almost every person was completely ordinary. They were not unbelievable people. They were ordinary people who had met Jesus and it changed everything. See, there's a phrase that I want to get in our head because I believe that we are in a generation of people that are asleep. I want you to look at two verses with me. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. And I'm going to ask you to repeat the first two words. You can look up on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. I'm going to ask you to say these first two words, but please do me a favor. Don't be a bunch of churchy people right here, okay? I've seen most of you at sporting events and places that you get excited. And so I want you to say these words loud and boldly. The first two words on the count of three. One, two, three, go. Wake up! Yes, wake up. And what is he saying wake up for? He says wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's something that's been planted in you, something that has been cultivated in you, and it is there to do something, but you're going to miss it. It's going to die. He says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. God has called you to something, and you've left it undone. So wake up and do what you've been called to do. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, I want you to look at the first two words on the count of three. Say it with me. One, two, three. Wake Wake up. up. Yes, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is is wake up don't be asleep at the wheel put our action into faith if i'm being honest with you i have had many seasons in my life over my 48 years and 28 years of ministry i've had many seasons where i've been awake and i've had seasons where i've been asleep anybody in here that is a christian that says hey there have been seasons in my life where i have been asleep And the Bible is calling us to wake up and to recognize those things. And I am grateful that there have been some significant people in my life that at the moment that I was asleep, they were the ones to tell me to wake up. And I'm so grateful for them. Because when they said wake up, I got to do the scariest things I've ever done in my life. Have you ever done something terrifying where God has called you to move, and yet even though it was really, really scary, the next thought in your head was when do I get to do that again? There's something that happens in you when you move into the place that God has called you to move, no matter how terrifying it may feel, that just connects you with the heart of our Father in heaven. And you go, oh, that was scary and awesome. And when can I do that again? See, that's what I want to challenge our church to. Over the next 12 to 18 months, there's three words that I want to dominate your mind. The first one is this. I want us to refocus as a church. I want us to be actively working to unleash the church. 
And we're going to do that by investing in generations. Here at our church, we have kids ministry that does amazing things. We have our student ministry that reaches teenagers. We have a school um, that teaches biblical uh, education to children. We have adult ministries that are doing awesome things with men's and women's and everything else. We have joy group. Like we have all like senior adults and all these people are actively doing things. And what we want to do is refocus our church and we want to leverage every one of our ministries, every one that we have to make sure that we are discipling and growing, that we are bringing the gospel, that we are seeing salvations and discipleship happen in the life of our church. And when I say reinvest in it, I mean two things. One, serve. Serve. We got a lot of new people at our church, and here's the default of a lot of new people when they show up to church. So they go, well, I'm not going to serve just yet. Um, You know, I'm new here. Can I just show you something real quick? If you have joined our church in the last two years, raise your hand. There's a lot of new people here. And we need you. I'm going to tell you, if you've never been around in the core values of Crossroads, here's what I would tell you we've said about our church for a long time. This is a good place to come and find healing. It is a bad place to sit for a long time. We want to find you. We want to get you active. The Bible tells us that the success of church leadership is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. God's put something in your life. He has encouraged something in your life. He wants to draw something out of your life, and you have to serve in order to do it. There are people in this church, you're not serving in your home, you're not serving in your neighborhood, you're not serving in your workplace, and you're not serving in your local church. And I would just tell you, if you want to be a part of investing in the next generation, start serving. Don't wait till it's convenient. It never will be. Start serving. Get to be a part of the life transformation and the revival of things that's happening in our world. And can I tell you something? If you're going, when when I say reinvest or refocus, I mean investing from our service, but I also mean investing financially. You know, we are a church that gives so much of our money away. So much so that this is a number I want you to get in your head for a minute. We spend on average, for those ministries, we spend an average of $78 a year per person for them to have access to hear the teaching and the truth of the Word of God at least 52 times. $78 per person per year. I don't know. That breaks down to, by the way, about $1.50 a week. That is about as frugal as as, that is about, that is is as much stewardship of of financial resources. Here's what I would say. Imagine cranking that buck 50 up to $3 a week. Dang. So I literally mean financial resources. I mean pouring more and investing more in our kids, in our youth, in our adult ministries, in all those things. That means we need your help in order to do that. Here's another word that I want to get in your head. Revive. My good friend Shane Pruitt, who goes to our church, he always says this. This is his quote. He says, we will not see a revival in our nation until we see a revival in our churches. And we will not see a revival in our churches until we receive a revival in our homes and individual lives. Matter of fact, I want to show you something. This right here is 40 cotton balls. Those 40 cotton balls on, uh, in most churches, this is approximately how many hours. Each one represents one hour. That is how many hours that we as a church get to invest in the lives of most of you, in particular your kids and your teenagers, in a year. 40 hours. You go back to the first point I just made about refocus. You want to know why it's so important that we invest well and that we maximize what we get is because this is what we get for a year. 
40 hours. That's the average amount of time we get with your kids and with your teenagers. By the way, parents, can I show you this? This is the amount of cotton balls that represents the hours that you get in a year. We want to invest in your kids and we want to invest in your family because this is what happens in your home. This is where it happens. You want to get a revival started? It's not going to start here. It's going to start right here, baby. It's going to start in your house. It's going to start in your marriage. It's going to start with your children. This is where all that investment is going to pour out. Don't be people who simply come to church and go, hey, church, it's your job to teach my kids about faith. No, it is your job to teach your kids about faith. This is the calling of parents. This is the calling of all of us, grandparents, all of those that are investing in the lives of kids. So we want to make sure that we want a revival to come. And if revival is going to come, it means we have to take it personally in every one of our homes. But I also will tell you, as a church, we want to see revival happen in our community. We, we used to say this all the time when I first came to Crossroads. We would say something like, um, I may get this kind of wrong because I haven't said it in a long time, but um, there's a lot of places that are churches, and I've served in some, that if the church was just wiped off the earth one day, there would be people that would drive by, and the only thing they would say is, wasn't there a building there? Because that building made no impact in the community. Man, we've always wanted to be a church that we made such an impact in the community that if this place was suddenly gone, that our city would go, oh my gosh, how are we going to do this? How do we get on without them? Another pastor friend of mine always says it like this. He goes, we too often are asking the question, how's our church doing? The church is the hope of the world. We need to start asking, how's our city doing? Are we making an impact in our community? I want to show you something really cool about Crossroads. If you don't know this, these are dots that represent every place that we have a missional partner that we engage with on a regular basis all throughout the year. It is schools and ministries and places where we get to go and be with people. This is not serve day. This is not big give. These are just regular, habitual, routine, missional partners within the city of Rowlett that we are investing in on a regular basis. And now what I'm going to add to them is over the last five years, the serve day and big give that has happened in the same spaces. Yeah, that's good news, man. And most of these people have never walked in our church, but the way we say it all the time is people start to realize how much they matter to God when they, be, when they start to see how much they matter to us. So we show them love. Now I'm going to throw some other dots up here. Let me tell you what they represent. We have what's called a care team. These are people that when random people call in for food, for clothes, they have a utility bill, their power's about to get shut off, and we get a chance to help, that represents those people as well. But it doesn't stop there. We love the city of Rowlett, but our area is bigger than that. So we have all the stuff we do in Rowlett, but then we have all these places that we have served in and regularly work and serve alongside ministries all throughout the DFW area. And we're adding to those all of the time. We want to see a revival, and we don't want that revival simply to happen here. We want a revival in this entire world. Can I get a good amen, church? That is what we are shooting for. And it doesn't stop there. See, the last word I want you to write down is called release that we want to go into all the world. We want to be a part of God's mission in this world. Why? Because the Bible says, go to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to where? The ends of the earth. And so we want to be a part of that. So I'll show you this real quick. This is, um, if you're not familiar with geography, that's where Texas is. For some of you, you're like, duh. Other ones are like, oh, really interesting. 
But I'm got, what we're about to put up here, and I'll, I'll do it in just a second, are partners that we have either partnered with or are about to partner with. Right here. This is our ability to be in the world. The only one that's really kind of brand new for us is down here. We've got one in Brazil. We are currently, uh, JD's been working with somebody uh, to work on a medical mission partnership in Brazil, but we have actively been to all of these other places or supporting them for a number of years. And let me tell you, when we support, there's two predominant functions that we are trying to do. We are meeting practical needs for a lot of people, in particular, widows and orphans. We do that throughout the world. But the second focus is being a part of places and ministries that plant churches and send out pastors and leaders. So I'm going to show you some numbers from these ministries of pastors and leaders that they have sent out. Put that number up, please. By the way, where you see 450 and 550, that's from two ministries. Those are the churches they have sent out in just 2022 and 2023 alone. There are over 1,400 churches represented there. We're not the only people that are a part of supporting them, but we are a key contributor to many of them because we don't want to just see a revival in Rowlett. We want to see a revival to the ends of the earth. Can I get an amen, church? And that means for you, we need some stuff. We need you to pray, and we need you to give, and we need you to go. And there's going to be great opportunities to do all those. We want to see a revival in our generation. As a matter of fact, so much so that some of you over the next few weeks, you'll hear about some changes we're making on our staff. Nobody's going anywhere. We love our staff. But we have a lot of needs that are happening in our church, and many of them are new, and we have to figure out who's doing what, and how are we going to make these things happen. So we're doing some realignment and restructuring on our staff. Every bit of that is for one reason. We see God moving, and we are anticipating growth. We're not trying to be ahead of God. We're trying to catch up at this point. And God is doing awesome things, and we are ready for it. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Without vision, the people perish. And we want to have vision, and the vision to move. I don't want us to miss this. I've got to go quickly here, because I know I'm going long, but here's the questions I want to pose to you um, uh, for the next few minutes. The first one is, are you a spiritual sleepwalker? Real quick, by show of hands, how many of you are night people? You're night owls. You stay up late at night. It's those people. Oh, put them up. Some of y'all are still waking up. There you go. Uh, there you go. It's early for some of those night owls. How many of you are morning people? Psychos. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean uh, sorry, that's not what I meant to say. I, you ever had those moments that your filter broke? Uh, so yeah. no matter whether you're a night person or a morning person, both of them are great. Have you ever had a moment where you involuntarily fell asleep? Like, you just got tired, and you're like, not now, Stephen, sorry. Um, uh, but, but you just fell asleep, and you had no control over it. You're in a class, or you're in a movie, or you're on a plane, or you're in a church, and some guy's talking on and on and on and on. And the worst thing, and I don't know if this ever happened, ever happened to you, but my wife tells me it happens to me, is you fall asleep somewhere in public, and you start snoring. And she always says the same thing. She wakes me up. She goes, oh, did you know you were snoring? No. <laughs> I was asleep. So I had no idea that I was snoring. But I'm glad she woke me up because I didn't want to be embarrassed. See, the key when you're a spiritual sleepwalker is you have to actually realize that you're asleep first. That it's actually loving to wake somebody up when they have fallen asleep to the voice of God. When they've lived life as a Christian on autopilot, they've become numb. 
It's not that they're doing anything bad. They're just not doing anything. And the truth is, and I will tell you, a great sign of this is that if you are bored in your Christian life, then you're not living in it the way you should. See, a lot of people believe and have bought into a lie, or at least a partial truth, I'll put it that way, about your Christian faith, and it looks like this, that the Christian life is that I admit that I'm a sinner, I accept that Jesus died for my sins, I pray a prayer, I'm baptized, I'm saved, and then when he dies, I get to go to heaven, he's just going to beam me up Star Trek style, and this whole thing's going to be over with. And it's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely true either. From the time that God saves you to the time that you go home, there's actually something you're supposed to do in that time. That's why Ephesians 5 says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Make the best use of the time. Anybody ever waste a day watching cat videos? No, okay, a few of y'all, okay. And it's not that it's horrible, it's not that it, it's just not the best use of your time. Why? Because Ephesians 5 says the days are evil. So understand what the will of the Lord is. When Jesus walked out of the grave, it wasn't a cool magic trick. He walked out of the grave to usher in the kingdom so that the prayer he taught us to pray that his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven would be actively fought for and lived out by his followers. That we live for his kingdom. But I want you to write a couple of things down. First is, a sleepy person is a defenseless person. If you're asleep, you're getting beat up. Or you're being left totally alone. I'll explain what I mean in a minute. John 10.10 says, A thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. When the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, distant, anxious, bitter, selfish, sleepy. Here's a question to ask yourself. Are you a threat to Satan? You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are gifted by the Holy Spirit to go and be a part of what God is doing as a part of his kingdom. Are you and what you are doing and how you are living any threat to Satan? Because if not, he will simply let you sleep. There's a question that plagues a lot of us. You know, why do bad things happen to good people? And I think there's a lot of answers to that question. But can I propose for believers an answer to this question that might be shocking and maybe even encouraging to you? Maybe the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Maybe it's because he says in Ephesians 5, the days are evil. And I'm not wishing bad stuff on a bunch of you people. That's not what I'm saying. But maybe there are bad things happening to good people because it's evidence that you are actually awake and a threat to Satan. And so he's coming after you. Another question, are you coasting spiritually in 2023? And this is just an honest question that you have to answer. And I'm going to be honest with you. In 2020 and 2021, there was a huge part of my life in ministry that I was coasting. I've said this and talked about this before, but I flirted with quitting and just getting out of ministry. And God can speak from a variety of different places. I remember one time I was watching a documentary, and it was about what's called BUDS training for the Navy SEALs. I don't know if you know this, but when Navy SEALs go into training, there's a way that they can quit. If they go, man, I just want to go back to do regular Navy stuff, I want out of here, they do what's called ringing out, where they go up to a bell, they hit a bell, they ring, and they're out. And there was a quote that they said, and it got my attention. The first part of it, they said, your mind will give out before your body does. I found that to be true. My body was still doing activity, but my mind was where it was struggling. And for them, they said, you're sitting there, it's freezing, it's dark, 
You're carrying a log of hundreds of pounds in the sand. You're sleep deprived. And then they said, the first step before ringing the bell is to coast. They said, the hard part is nobody knows that you're coasting. But it's the first step towards giving up. Coast. My question is, is there anybody in here that you've been coasting in your spiritual life because what you are in danger of is you are in danger of tapping out. Or you're in danger of something really stupid. Because another definition potentially of the days are evil is that we make our worst decisions when we are burnt out and asleepy. That's when affairs happen. That's when we drift from God. It's when we make horrible decisions. I thought for a time, because to be honest with you, I think a lot of us can coast and fake it pretty well. And there was a time where I went, I can coast. I've done, I mean, I've served God for, at that point, 23 years. I can just take a break. I can coast the rest of the way. There's a good chance nobody in my church will know. But Jesus will. And one day, I'll stand before him and give an account. And so will you. See, my desire is for God to awaken our faith. But I think the challenge for us is to understand how we wake up. See, God puts faith because, first, he wants to do something in you, and then he wants to do something through you. He wants to do something in you, and then he wants to do something through you. In you is the most important part. Through you will happen if in you happens. But if I'm honest with you, I often want to jump to what God's going to do through me and ignore what he needs to do in me. It happens in a lot of areas of my life. Like, for example, when I go, I would really like to run another marathon. I just don't want to train for it at all. Or I would love to take my family on the most amazing vacation they have ever experienced. I just don't want to plan it or pay for it. I would like to create new spiritual friendships that would be amazing and change my life. But I don't want to invest in spending time with all those people over and over again. I would, lo <laughs> I would love to lose weight. But I also want to eat Taco Bell and Chick-fil-A for every meal of my life. See, I want the end result, but I don't want need, what needs to happen in me. This is what happens. This is what happens in our spiritual life. We all want to be a part of something supernatural on this end, but we don't want to let God do the transformation that needs to occur to get us there. See, we have to be willing to do the work. And so I want to pray that over the next year to 18 months, and I hope it starts today for some of you, is there's two things that I'm asking that God awaken in every one of our lives. And the first one is that he would awaken generosity. I don't want you to miss what God is doing. I don't want you to miss what God is preparing to do. And when we talk about generosity here, we talk about your treasure, your time, and your talent. Let's talk about your treasure for just a moment. And yes, this is financial. We are people that are supposed to approach our income as stewards, not owners. It belongs to God. We steward it. It is not ours. 
And I would also say, because I want to acknowledge this, when any time a church talks about money, and if you've come here for any length of time, you know that we don't very often. But anytime a church talks about money, there's wounds that are happened in so many people's lives. So the moment it's brought up, they put up a wall because they go, oh, I've heard churches talk about money before. Somebody has handled it tactlessly. Somebody has handled it horribly. Somebody has used guilt and shame to try to motivate giving out of you, and they did it for very selfish and self-serving purposes. I want you to know that when we talk about that, we want to approach it with humility and integrity. But I also want to love you enough to say this. It breaks my heart that God, excuse me, it breaks my heart that somebody robbed you from experiencing God's blessing in this part of your life. God wants to do something incredible through your generosity. See, Jesus knows that there is an invisible wire from your treasure to your heart. He's not actually after your treasure. He is after your heart. There's a lot of people in this room that might go, you know, Jason, money is just a huge stress for me. Maybe it's a huge stress for you because you never invited Jesus into it. We don't want to stop with our generosity there. We want to bring it into our time and our talent. Listen, I will just tell you right here, in your local church, there are many things that need to get done that right now we don't have enough people to do. We have never wanted to be the stereotypical church where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. We want 100% of the people of God to do the work of God. That's our goal. That's our desire. That's our ambition. And there are people that feel a lack of fulfillment and purpose in their life, and the reason for some of it is because they're not serving. They're not using their gifts. Don't wait till it's convenient. Don't wait till it fits your schedule. And by the way, can I just say this? It's one of the interesting things that I experience, and I know you experience it too. You'll know what I mean when I say this. When everybody's lives gets busy, isn't it strange that the first thing we eliminate to be less busy is serving how God's called us to serve? We're still making time for football. We didn't cut that out. We still got plenty of time to go out to eat and do all these other things that we want to do. So the first thing that we eliminate in order to free up time is the very stuff that God called us to be active doing with our faith to begin with. And I just want to challenge us as a church, don't do that. There are places God wants you to serve, and there's a joy in serving. All of that refocus that we talked about, investing in the lives of all those people in ministry, we have to have people in order to do that. So don't don't bail on it. The other thing I want him to awaken for us is awaken community. We need community. If you need, you need people around you that remind you to wake up. You need people around you to spur you on to love and good works according to Scripture. That's why we have been focused this year on a lot of what we call ex- like connection experiences. Just in the last week, we had man camp, which was awesome. It was a great moment to connect for men in our church. We also had family camp where about 130 people were in here with tents and all kinds of craziness as an opportunity to connect. But there's more coming. This coming Wednesday night, if you haven't come to any Wednesday nights at all, This coming Wednesday night, if you would like to, you can come right here in this room. My wife and I are hosting a thing called Finding Friends. We're going to have spiritual conversations. We're going to pray for one another, but we're going to have some fun too. And you're going to get a chance to connect with some people because you need it. If you're married in this room, raise your hand. Yep, all of you. We have a thing called It's a Date coming up. We're going to a place called Group Dynamics. If you've never been, it's a super fun place. We get to do all kinds of crazy stuff together. We're going to laugh. We're going to have fun. But the whole point of the night is because married couples need other godly married couples in their life. 
And there's a ton of them that don't have that. And we want to create an opportunity for you to find some friends and connect in marriage. We also have a thing that we're going to be doing next year. I won't go too deep into this. But in 2024, groups at this church will look different than it ever has. And our objective is to get every single person in this church into a group of some sort at least part of the year. I'll unpack a lot more of that in coming months, but just, man, it is coming. Now, why do I say all this? John chapter 10, verse 10, I'll go back to that verse again. It says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But then Jesus says this, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. Now, this word gets taken out of context and twisted all the time. And what it mean, what, for a lot of people, what that means is that God wants me to have the abundance of all the things that I want. That is not the abundance he's talking about. The abundance he's talking about is not that you get everything you want. It's that he gets everything he wants out of you. That God maximizes the gifts that he has poured into you. That you are willing to say, I'm going all my chips in on this. I am all in 100%. And let me tell you something. This is an urgent, urgent message in our world right now. I don't know if you are aware of this, but our culture is freaking out. And let me tell you why. It's because for several years now, for many, many years now, we have had a message in our culture of what you can grab a hold on for fulfillment and hope. And you've got people with things like hookup culture and sexual revolution. They say, grab a hold of that for hope. Or grab a hold of, of finances for hope. Or grab a hold of, of whatever. It's not like, some, like your, your popularity for hope. Grab a hold of being known. So you've got to go be an influencer. Or get known on social media or Snapchat or TikTok or one of those things. And that's going to be what brings you fulfillment in life. Grab a hold of that. 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 And we live in a world. Grab a hold of the government because the government will fix all your problems. It's about a political party. I don't care if they're red or blue, however you lean, none of them are ever going to be the solution to this world. A solution to this world is Jesus Christ. And so they've grabbed a hold of all this, and here's what you're seeing beginning to happen in our world right now, is people have reached for all those things, and they're starting to realize that they don't work. And something's happening. You're seeing things stirring. There's an awakening. There's a reason, like, Damar Hamlin goes down with cardiac arrest on a football field, and you get an ESPN commentator on national television that says, I don't know if I'm going to get fired for this, but I'm going to pray right now. You got another guy at the beginning of this NFL season, Demario Davis, who got done at the end of his first game, and he came in for a press conference at the end, and he said, you know what? We meet on Sundays, and Sundays is a day that in my family we always reserve for church. So instead of doing a normal press conference, we're going to have a Bible study. And on national TV, he had a Bible study. There's a reason that you see the stirring of things happening on college campuses like Asbury, where they started uh, a, a, church, a normal worship service one night, and then it went on for weeks, and there were tons of people baptized. You're seeing um, spontaneous baptisms happen in the U.S. and around the world, right here in our own church. If you weren't here and you missed this, oh, sucker, you missed something amazing. Because we sat here in this room and 38 people with no warning in a spontaneous service gave their lives to Christ and we baptized them right here in the same service. There is something stirring in our world. The world is searching. And if the church is asleep, when the world is searching, we will miss the opportunity of a lifetime. 
We want to wake up to the voice of God and help people wake up to God's plan for redemption. And the time is now. It is urgent now. See, the God that we have placed our faith in brings dead things back to life. Amen? The God that we have placed our faith in can create something from nothing. Can I get an amen, church? He is on our side, so we're not backing down. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Our faith will take us places that nothing else can take us. And that's why, and I want to say the words of a song we're about to sing. Curse me, and I will bless you. If you are helpless, I'll defend you. If you are burdened, I'll share the weight. If you are hopeless, I'll show you. There is hope in Jesus' way. He wore my sin, I'll wear his name. Chain me up, I'll sing his praise anyway. Kill me, sucker, my home is heaven. I choose surrender. I choose love. I choose forgiveness. I choose grace. I choose to worship no matter what I face. I choose to do things Jesus' way. And we will do that when we come to him in faith.